Hello and welcome to my podcast. You're listening to Debbie Souter of Together Talking Music and each week I'll be speaking with guest songwriters, musicians, artists and educators about how music and song has influenced their lives personally and professionally. And we'll find out which three songs have really made an impact on our guests' lives and the reasons why. to episode four. Today I'm speaking with songwriter and musician Mark Nevin. Mark Nevin was born in Ebbo Vale in South Wales, number six of eight children. On seeing David Bowie perform Starman on TV, he realised that it was his destiny to be a songwriter. So he saved the five pound required to buy a friend's brother's unwanted guitar and set about learning his craft. He was just 13 years old. Mark left school at 15 and worked in a guitar shop until he was 18. Then he left home and headed for London. His plans for songwriting glory were interrupted when he joined the religious cult, the Moonies, also known as the Unification Church. After escaping the clutches of the Moonies, he continued on his path playing in various bands, including Sandy Shaw's backing band, until age 28 when he formed Fairground Attraction with Scottish singer Eddie Reader, and released his song, Perfect, which went to the top of the UK charts and become a hit in countries all over the world. It won the Brit Award for Best Single, while the album from which it was taken, First of a Million Kisses, won Best Album of the same year in 1988. Fairground Attraction were the first band to win the coveted Best Single and Best Album Awards at the Brits in the same year, and have only since been equaled by Blur, Coldplay and Adele. The band imploded shortly afterwards and Mark went on to co-write with Morrissey and Kirsty McCall, scoring four top 40 hits with Morrissey. The Morrissey Nevin song, I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday, was also covered by his original inspiration, David Bowie, on the number one album, Black Tie, White Noise, produced by Noel Rogers. Over the years, Mark's songs have been recorded by various artists, including Ringo Starr, Joe Cocker, Misha Paris, Gary Talent of the E Street Band, amongst many others. In 1999, Mark began recording as a solo artist and has since made six critically acclaimed albums, Insensitive Songwriter, The Mighty Dove, Stand Beside Me in the Sun, Beautiful Guitars, My Unfashionable Opinion, and Strike Up the Sally Ann. He continues to write and record his solo material as well as collaborating with other artists and hosting a weekly radio show for Boogaloo Radio called The Dap Pill. Mark Nevin, thank you so much for joining me and our listeners today, Mark. I'm not sure where to start, but suffice it to say, you've led such an interesting and varied life. Number six of eight children and born in Ebbervale. Have I pronounced that right? Is it Ebbervale? Ebbervale. Ebbervale in South Wales. You saw David Bowie perform Starman on television, and it was then that you realised it was your destiny to become a songwriter. Yes. 
what was that pivotal moment like for you? Oh, it's just like the most, this was, this is it, you know, this was it. I mean, I think the generation before me probably had a similar experience seeing Elvis on the, on the Ed Sullivan show, but for my generation, sort of boomer generation, it was seeing Bowie on Lift Off with Asia, which is a TV show uh, in, in the early 70s, kids TV show. And he came on and he was there with this uh, amazing hairdo and uh, and just bizarre clothes. You just, at the time, you, you look back now and you, you, you've seen those images a million times, but at the time it was just like the world was just transformed. Like, what is this? You know, the, you know, the band were called the Spiders from Mars and they might as well have been from Mars for all we knew. <laughs> they just were just, they just landed and they were star men and... And, I, and that life was never the same. And I thought, this is what I do. I wasn't sure what this was, that it was being done. And I thought, this is me. This is my destiny. And um, and I got a guitar for five quid off someone's brother who didn't want it anymore. Not surprising because it was an absolutely terrible guitar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like cheese wire and rust, um, uh, beautifully blended together in pain and discord. And um, so I got that guitar and I started to strum it. And the first song I wrote was called... I wish I had an orchestra, although I wish I'd had a decent guitar probably would have been sufficient <laughs> at the time. Yeah, I think we're um, speaking about those pivotal moments. I think we're really privileged to have that, those absolute moments of clarity and beliefs so early on in our lives. We know where we want to, to be and where we want to go. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, well, I, you know, I, I never really felt like, the other kids because we moved around a lot when i was young that was actually in bristol we i was born in wales but we moved around to reading and leamington spa so i was always like yeah it was never part of the the local scene i was always like an odd new kid and so i sort of felt at odds with the people at school when they're very nice people but i just always felt like an outsider because i was and so um yeah as i got the guitar and i would just uh, listen to bowie records and try to be like him and um yeah it was just the world that I lived in and my, you know my mum used to read me the parables from the bible and I loved the feeling that I had when I'd hear these stories which had a real meaning to them there was a sort of a moral to the tale and when I heard those stories I used to always get this sort of good taste in my mouth that you know that, mm. that makes sense and and say it was the same with good songs they had a beginning a middle and an end and at the end you were slightly transformed you know yeah you came from a, a big family you six of number six of eight children mm. um just wonder what it was like growing up it must have been quite a busy household yeah it was it was amazing uh you know we'd have dinner every dinner would be at 10 people sitting around fighting over the potatoes and <laughs> it was lovely they, they were just my, my parents were just such lovely people and i am so grateful for the childhood i had were they, um, were your siblings musical? Were your parents musical? Or? They weren't, nobody played an instrument. We had a piano, like an, a, a tuned piano, but nobody really, my dad loved singing. He was Welsh and he loved singing. He loved like, singers like Mario Lanza and Harry Seacombe and uh, people like that. And so he just loved to sing in church and he loved to tell stories. He was a brilliant storyteller. My mum was a brilliant storyteller as well. So you know, I'm 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 old enough to sort of 
probably of, of the time when people would sit around and just tell stories instead of just sitting down and chilling out with Netflix, you know. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so yeah. I grew up with that tradition. And I guess writing songs, that's a transition from that, isn't it? Storytelling. Yes. Yeah, they, they love music and, you know, we the church music and, and my, my dad's music. And my, my, my uncle, Leslie, who uh, was... Um, a great organist and accordionist he was very sort of amazing uh so that was always there and um yeah that it, it's what i wanted to do and when i was uh, 13 i got a ticket to see david bowie um because he was just doing the ziggy stardust tour and he came we were in bristol and i got a ticket to see him and i went there with my friend and in those days at the Colston Hall, uh, there would be a, at the back of the stage, they would have the choir seats where the choir would sit for classical concerts. And uh, you, they, you could buy those tickets. They were the cheapest tickets you could get, all right, because they, you were looking at the back of the performers. So I got one of these. I was actually on stage with David Bowie. Oh, <laughs> when, wow. When, <laughs> when, when, it, when I was 13, sitting behind him as he watching, the, I could see him, you know, behind the wings before he came on and then coming on, yeah. exploding into a sort of big cloud of dried ice and, and, and doing Moon Age Daydream and, and Gene Genie and all these songs like about three foot away from me. Wow. It, it was so exciting. I turned around <laughs> to my friend and just punched him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what did you do that for us? I don't know. I, I just didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I'm really envious that you got to sit yeah. so close to David Bowie. He's just one of my absolute idols. He just um, really changed the face of music, really, didn't he? Oh, at completely. That time, you know. Yeah, and I love Mick Ronson, the guitar player from The Spiders from Mars. And Mick Ronson was, was uh, where I was sitting on the stage was like really close to Mick Ronson. So when he would do this, the really incredible solo on Moon Age, Moon Age Daydream with all the strobes and the dry ice, he was right next to me. It was like, wow, this is something else. It was, it changed yeah. my life. You know, I've never. Yeah, you know. It, it is. Again, it's those moments of um, uh, clarity, isn't it? Um, it's hard to describe. I've had those moments too that have taken me in, the direction that I've gone into music and um, I remember oh I think I must have been about 12 or 13 and I watched the Glenn Miller story for the first oh, time yeah. on the I television yeah. and um, I just sat there and just the mix that he got between the clarinets and the saxophones and getting that special sound I just sat there and suddenly I started crying I didn't know why and it was it moved me so much that I thought I want to play the sax yeah. and I want to be not just play the sax. I want to be in a swing band and I want to play in a sax section. And so I almost self-taught myself the sax and, um, and then I joined a, a swing band and I, I did what I, I wanted to do. And I think you have to have those special moments like that, mm. that grab you and push you forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, remember so were you... go, go on, I was going to say, we were also going to see the Sid Lawrence Orchestra who would do the whole Glenn Miller thing at the Colston Hall with my dad. And that was incredible because that was an amazing sound to witness live. Yeah, yeah, you can't, I don't think you can beat like this big band booming sound, can you? It's, yeah, no, and it's I... fantastic to play, yeah. to play in that as well. And Yeah. Were you self-taught on guitar or? Yes, um, I... I 
Oh, sorry. Sorry, someone's just called. Stop, stop. <laughs> oh, no, I should have turned the phone off. Um, so what was I going to say? Um, was I self-taught? Yes, I never really had any guitar lessons. Um, I went to, I think I said at 13, I saw David Bowie. And at 15, I left school. My uh, music, you know, they... Uh, they just did classical music and stuff, which I love now. But at the time, just seemed like incredibly boring, and um, and so I left school when I was fifteen, and I, I just I just would, could play chords and would try to play like Mick Ronson, and um, and uh, right. Main, the main thing was I wanted to play the guitar so I could write songs. That was the that was the main thing. And secondly, I was a musician, and firstly, a songwriter. And so I was self-taught completely, and then I left school at fifteen. I went to my careers officer. Uh, and as I was leaving and they said, you've got to see this guy. And he said, well, what are you going to do, Mark, now? I said, I'm going to be a songwriter. And he said, all oh, right, yeah, yeah. Well, you could, well, you could be an astronaut, like. This is Bristol. <laughs> very strong. You could be an astronaut. Why not try that? I said, I might as well have been an astronaut in the little village that I lived in because there were no songwriters. It was just farmers and, you know, and stuff. And, and I said, well, he said, look, looking at your exam results, which were very poor, uh, he said, I think you're best suited some kind of factory work. And of course, round by where I lived, the factory was the Cadbury Schweppes chocolate factory. And oh, lovely. Lots, <laughs> lots, of the, lots, of, lots of the kids would go and work at the chocolate factory. And I said, oh, no, I'm not going to work at the chocolate factory. I've actually got a song on, on a, an album I made a few years ago called Curly Whirly Boy. And I say, um, I, you know, making chocolate to to making chocolate covered toffee in sticky plastic gloves well i ain't gonna i ain't gonna i, I won't be the curly whirly boy <laughs> so that was my reply to the careers officer no, i it, love that i think i would have jumped at the chance of working in the chocolate factory actually yeah, <laughs> yeah it's uh, i had a very similar experience actually at my school um I actually said I wanted to go into music as well, and uh, it wasn't an option. It was um, you either become a secretary or a nurse in yeah. those days, yeah. and so I did. I, I became a secretary, and and then I decided that no, this isn't for me, and I threw it all up in the air and <laughs> went down the music route, hmm. and so glad that I did. And I think um, yeah, in schools. I think really they should have, um, you know, everyone's got dreams and everyone's got a potential to feel the, fulfill those dreams, haven't they? And, uh, and that's why it's so important as well. I think like you had to have that self-belief. Well, you've got to be a bit mad, really. I mean, because it's a stupid thing to go into, isn't it? Music? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've got to be deluded and desperate. <laughs> as well as all these things to take into consideration and and you know and like by the time i'd got to 28 my dad was saying look isn't it about time you came home i was in london by then and got yourself a proper job son you should have got the chocolate factory job after all you know <laughs> i really was and i oh dear this is i'm a bit too far down this road to go back now i better do something substantial to make it worthwhile at which point i uh wrote perfect and and never looked back but it was i was it was out of desperation you know my mum used to, always used to say you know necessity is the mother of invention and it really was out of necessity that, that i pushed over the line and i think that you have to get that you know if you want to go into music you've you've got to it's, it's got to be vocational if it's not then really 
yeah don't, don't expect any any favors from anyone yeah i totally agree you've got to have that that self-drive haven't you um yeah. to be able to make it work yeah um so you left school at the tender age of 15 and you worked in a guitar shop for a while yeah i just got a, so that's the only job i wanted uh, i said they said i got to get a job as well working in a guitar shop downtown i used to go to every sunday every saturday every weekend and just look at all the guitar shops around bristol just do a tour every saturday a tour of the guitar shops looking in the window going in saying please can i try that guitar play trying a guitar and so i'd play five or six guitars in the course of the saturday and uh, and there was one shop particularly that i liked on park street in bristol called churchill's i said i want to work in Churchill's, so i got a job in churchill's i got about 14 quid a week which was like it seemed like a lot of money at the time and, uh, and then I got, uh, we started a band, me and my brother, called The Taxis. We, call, we, we called ourselves Bristol's Top Funk and Soul Band. Uh, we, we we weren't funky, we had no soul, and we definitely weren't the best <laughs> band in Bristol. <laughs> we were just a bunch of liars with guitars. guitars. And um, and then then I, I when that broke up and I came to, uh, you know, we, we played like Baileys and all these sorts of, sorts of working men's clubs and stuff in Wales, the rugby clubs on a Saturday afternoon. That's a, well, that is a pretty ugly sight. You know, and a lot of these <laughs> rugby players, they'd start drinking at about, you know, about four, four, half past four as soon as the game started. And about eight o'clock, they were paralytic. Please, some Beatles, <laughs> please, some Beatles. Okay. <laughs> and um, so I learned a lot about, about songs by playing songs to people you know, that covers, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people these days miss out on because they all want to write their own songs, which is great. But when you go and play covers to people, you really learn about what's working and what isn't. And you think, oh, they love this one. And you think, well, why do they love this one? Well, it's this chorus. Well, it's this groove. It's this, uh, you know, whatever. And and so it teaches you what works and what doesn't. And so that's a really great sort of foundation for writing songs. Mm -hmm. And then I left, uh, then I left um, London. I came to London. To, left Bristol and came to London when I was 18. And the first thing that I did was join a religious cult. You, you yeah. just, which wasn't a very good idea, really, looking yeah. back. But it's just that um, I think I miss my family, you see. <laughs> and, and I, yeah. And I think when you're younger, you're more susceptible, aren't you, to getting drawn into to things like that. It was the Moonies, wasn't it? That you, moonies, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I was very idealistic. You see, I always had believed that I, I had to do something. My mum used to say to me, <clears throat> "Mark, you something different about you than the other ones. You're going to be a saint or something." She used to say. She used to tell me I was going to be a saint. And, <laughs> uh, and so when I when I went to London and I met these people who said that, that you know that this that they were the sort of they were going to save the world, I thought, "Oh, this must be my destiny. I'm I'm going to be a saint. I'm I'm turned my back on chocolate, sainthood." <laughs> Here I come. <laughs> and um, and how so long like, were you in the Moonies for? Well, I was only in there for four months, which doesn't seem very long looking back. But when you're 18 and you've just left home, it felt like it felt like four years. And it was more that it was the, the fallout from it that was really affected. You know, it was it really did. It was the first time that I'd been cheated in my life, you know, and I didn't believe that anyone could cheat you because I had such lovely parents and I was very very innocent I was very small when I was when I left home my mum said you looked like you were about 11 years old walking away with your suitcase 
so I was small and I was very, very sheltered. So I walked up to that big girt London with all those sort of people and got completely ripped off by these, uh, not, not the individuals that I was dealing with. They were, de they were innocent victims of something that was very sinister at the top of the moonies, uh, mm. which was Sun Myung Moon himself, <laughs> a megalomaniac mm. psychopath. Um, so coming out of that was like the end of my childhood and it really did take me a long yeah. time to, to gain any sort of equilibrium. Mm. Yeah, and you would have learned a lot in that very short space of time. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> your most famous song that you spoke about earlier, I guess is perfect in the band Their Ground Attraction. Did you know at the time the song was going to be such a tremendous worldwide hit when you wrote it? No, because when you're, you know, sitting in a bed sit uh, on your own, you sort of you hope those things will happen, but and 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 also you sort of think all of them are going. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a bit. Oh, this is well. Oh no, it's not. Oh, this one, you know. Uh, so you, there's that naive optimism about lots of songs you write. But there was that it was in when I wrote that song. It was just couldn't get it out of my head. It would just go round and round. I thought that's very catchy. This and and I was aware that you know I'd started Eddie. I'd met Eddie. Uh, reader and we'd started to do these little gigs together in pubs and it was sort of we we're trying to do kind of an Edith Piaf sort of story I was I wanted to write these songs that were stories and more like almost half almost like a poem but a bit more than a poem but not not like a pop song there were little vignettes with beginnings and stories you know a bit like musical parables really that's what they were and um but I had this song perfect and I thought Eddie won't like this is too cheerful it's too poppy she wants to do the sort of waltzy sort of sad ones you know which she did so brilliantly so I thought I I, I, I don't know how, how to because uh, one of the big challenges of writing a song is, is is presenting it to somebody in a way that makes them want to sing it and I thought I, I really think this is a good song this is going to be really a standout song but I can imagine that she'd say, oh, no, man, that's way too poppy. I'm not doing that one or something like that. And so I thought I've got to uh, I've got to employ reverse psychology, which is how I used to often do things. Because <laughs> she's a very sort of uh, stubborn, redheaded Scottish woman. And um, I'd say, oh, I've written this song. I don't think we should do it in the band. It's not really for us. But uh, I just played it to her and then just turned it on a little cassette and turned it off and then changed the subject to something else. Anyway, what's, uh, what should we do? Well, I don't What's going on, man? I don't get it. Why, what's wrong with that song? Why, why don't you think we should do it in the band? I said, I just didn't think it'd be right for us. <laughs> so the reverse psychology worked really yeah. well. <laughs> and, and sure, no, I think I'd be great, man. So... So we did it and we I taught her at that there and then and, we, and that night we were playing a little gig in Hackney and we played it and the response was just extraordinary. It was people, by the time we got to the last chorus, everyone was singing it as though it was already a hit. We thought, I started to think, is this an old song that I've, <laughs> that I've heard somewhere else? And, and I'm just sort of, you know, <laughs> you know but it, it was incredible. And someone came to me afterwards that, that night and said, if you release that song, it'll be number one. And next year it was number one. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? How did that success make you feel when that actually happened? Oh, it's absolutely fantastic, actually. It was just, it was brilliant. We, I remember the time when it, the moment it went into the charts, because we, we, we made the album uh, and we made it very quickly. Two and a half weeks we recorded and, and mixed it and had 14 songs. 
because we just played them live we didn't really produce them you know we just played them and recorded them so it was so simple because everyone could do that and so when it came out and uh oh it got straight on the playlist at radio one oh, that's good oh great this is amazing you know and then then it came to the top 40 that week when they, they were hoping that it was going to go into the charts we didn't know and uh Eddie used to live in a little squat down in Lambeth on this road called Walnut Tree Walk in a little prefab. And um, she had a little garden outside. And it was a spring day, a bit similar to this day today. And um, we listened to the charts and they said, new in at number 38, perfect by Fairground Attraction. And she was just doing the gardening and I was standing there going, wow, we're in the charts. <laughs> yeah, and that was when being in the charts really meant something. It's not, yeah. it's not, I don't think people today can understand what being in no. the charts means. It must have seemed quite unreal at the time. It was completely unreal. It was just, oh. Mm. In a way, it was like, was that it then? You, you thought, sort of, I don't know, there should be spitfires flying over <laughs> or something. But it was just a bit like, oh, that's okay. And then, and then of course, next week, it went to number 12. And then we were on top of the... No, that's that we went on top of the pops. And, of course, going on top of the pops in those days also something that people these days can't appreciate was it yeah you got on top you'd made it that was the sign yeah you're exactly every thursday night wasn't it i think it was exactly on, and no one can <laughs> take it away from you once you've been on there you you've been yeah. baptized into pop history and um, so that was great and of course then it went to number two and then when it was going to be number one because the midweek the, the record company said the, you know the prediction is it's going to go to number one and that, that week we weren't allowed to, um, we were going to be doing some more recording for the B-sides for the follow-up. Uh, but Eddie at the last minute got, got a cold. And so we, we cancelled the recording. However, my parents had start, um, organised a big party to celebrate what they thought and hoped was going to happen. It was going to go to number one. So they had all my brothers and sisters who are now all grown up and they've all got loads of kids themselves. So there's hundreds of us now, you know. <laughs> uh come down in minivans to my parents house to have a party to celebrate this great moment unfortunately i couldn't be there because i was going to be in the studio except at the last minute it was cancelled so i thought well i'll go but i won't tell them i'll just turn up at the last moment so i got i got on the train down to bristol and i got off at a railway station and i said got a taxi i said take me to oldland common where we where my parents lived and uh i said to the taxi driver says I've got to tell you something mate I said this is a great moment in my life <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm 28 I've been writing songs all my life anyway tonight I'm gonna be number one he says oh that's weird I had another bloke like you in here I went what what <laughs> how, how could there be another bloke like me uh, uh this is incredible he says yeah that Roger Greenaway he wrote that song I'd like to buy the world a coke I took him, I took him, he was from Bristol as well, I took him home when he was number one. I went, yeah, basically. <laughs> so, so, so I got to, uh, I got to, to our village and I said, can you stop me, drop me off just here, mate? I said, right outside the school. I said, I wanted to walk past the school where my music teacher had told me I was a complete waster and my, and my, and my careers officer said I should be a curly whirly boy. I'm going to walk past there and gloat. <laughs> then I'm going to walk down my parents' house and turn up for the great moment about five minutes before seven when number one was released. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> so I walked in. I, I walked in, right? And uh, 
and all the little ones went, it's Uncle Mark, Uncle Mark's here. So it's a hero's return, just like you dreamt it would happen. I came in and uh, just as they sort of got number three in the charts and then, because if, if S Express were number two had gone down, because they'd be number one a week before, that meant we were number one. And he goes, and at number two, down from last week's number one, S Express. And we all like, yes. And my dad said these, oh. the greatest words I ever heard in my life. I was wrong when I said you should have got a proper job, son. <laughs> <laughs> and you also became the saint in that moment that your mum said yes, you would be. Like that halo <laughs> at that so, um, yeah, that must have been an, an extraordinary moment that, yeah, you just cherish those moments, don't you? Um, sorry to bring you back down from that, <laughs> but, but then fairground attraction imploded. Um, did you worry about what you was going to do next once that happened? Oh, it was, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, uh, it was awful. It was a bit like the Moonies thing all over again. <laughs> it, was, it was my life to swing from good and bad. It was awful. You know, I, I, I left the band. I mean, it was in, became impossible uh, to just became unworkable. And um, I thought, I can't do this. And I left. I was we were in that studio making the uh, second album. And I went home. I said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then I just didn't know what to do. Um, really didn't know what to do. I was really quite lost. And then I got a, a call from Kirsty McCall, who I'd known before. And she said, oh, and you come over and uh, you did this demo for me like 10 years ago and played this great guitar on it. Can you come over and redo it? Because I want to I release it as, as, a, as a record. So I went over to her house and she played me this track. I said, well, that's great, but it's not me. I don't know who that is. So, <laughs> so you've got the wrong person completely. But anyway, it put me back in touch with Kirsty and she said, oh, let's do write some songs. So we started writing. And while I was in the studio with her, we were recording a song, um, Walking Down Madison, which she wrote with Johnny Marr. I got a phone call from my publishers and they said, um, oh, um, I just heard that Julio Iglesias has done one of your records. I'm really? Oh, that's amazing. Julio Iglesias, I thought that's one of your songs. Then they called again about three hours later in the same day and he said oh we just had a call Morrissey wants you to write songs with him I said really this is a weird day who do you heard Glacis and Morrissey in the same afternoon they didn't see, often see that happen <laughs> quite so, extremes really aren't they <laughs> yeah and I said well they said and so Andrew Perez who Morrissey's drummer called me up and said oh can you send some music to Burt Reynolds in Manchester I said what he said yeah just he gave me the address, address it to Burt Reynolds and send it to Morris, which is Morris's pseudonym. I don't know why they thought that that would make it keep him, <laughs> keep him. Uh, it seemed a bit obvious that it wasn't Burt Reynolds living in Manchester. So I'd send these tapes to Burt Reynolds and, um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I never even met Morris. I just kept sending these tapes and I didn't even know what. And then he, then he sent, started to send me postcards. The first one just said perfect. That's all it said. And then he said these amazing letters, which I've still got. They're very funny. They're all they're, they're like Morrissey lyrics. And um, and then one day I was going to the walking down the road with a jiffy bag with one of the cassettes with Burt Reynolds written on it. So I went down outside my house in Camden to put the jiffy bag into the post box. And as I was putting it in there, Morrissey walked past. And I went, oh, I, I says, I was just about to send this to you. And he says, oh, thank you. 
and he was he was very embarrassed a very shy man and he went totally beetroot red and i gave him the jiffy bag thank you and i said well i'll see you in the studio then he went okay and that's the first time i met him by which time we'd sort of written pretty much the whole album by post yeah um so you scored um as you say you went on to write with morrissey and kirsty mccall scoring four top 40 hits with morrissey mm. and the morrissey nevin song i know it's going to happen someday was also covered by your original inspiration david david bowie i know it's mad isn't it? <laughs> it's totally insane no i i it was i was i was in america with kirsty mccall in los angeles and uh and morrissey happened to be playing with his band there at the same time and um we were staying at the the mondrian hotel which is a very fancy hotel there and has a swimming pool on the top top floor we're all sort of by the pool living the dream you know and morrissey's band all sitting there sunning themselves looking very cool with their quiffs and that and uh and alan uh said to alan the guitar player morris's guitar player then said to me oh i've got some good news for you i said what is david bowie's done your song i went what he says yeah david bowie's done your song. i know it's gonna i said no he hasn't so yeah he has and and indeed he had and uh and then eventually it was produced by nile rogers and i got a cassette of it just before it came out and I, I couldn't believe it happened. It was incredible. It's almost like you you come a full circle at that point. Yeah, yeah. You you, you if you've got a um, you got a you got to have a pure heart, and, and amazing things happen. Yeah. Amazing thing, miracles. Miracles do happen. They they happen all the time. People think they're made up, but they're not. They're not made up. They're real, and they happen to anybody. Who, who opens themselves up to them, haven't they? Yeah, I agree. So the three song choices that you've made, I wonder if you can tell us about the first one that you've chosen. Well, I chose Starman simply because I thought it'd be good to illustrate the story that, that I just told about seeing David Bowie, because <clears throat> that was the song that I first heard of his. I mean, really, I probably would have chosen, I almost chose Life on Mars, because I think that was one that I really loved most uh, from that era. But Starman special because it was the first one and it's a great song a great record and i love mick ronson's guitar playing on it as well and your second choice the second choice is bobby jean by bruce springsteen now bobby but i mean i love bruce springsteen uh, and i love this song it's a very beautiful song it's about when um uh, miami steve van zance his guitar player and best friend at chose to leave the e street band in the 80s or 90s because he wanted to go and pursue his own thing and 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 bruce is singing he's, bobby jean is really is miami steve and he's sort of saying you know good luck goodbye you know it's a, a bittersweet song it's a beautiful song and bruce springsteen was a massive influence on me i had an extraordinary experience with him as well <laughs> actually because uh, it was when i was back in about 19 it was 1980 because it was during the river tour bruce springsteen was playing at the uh wembley arena and, and i couldn't afford a ticket and i didn't I couldn't get a ticket and i could and i but i, I thought i'm gonna go up there and somehow i'm gonna get into this gig <laughs> so i went to wembley arena i was outside 
and uh, touts were selling tickets for a hundred pound, which in 1980 was like 500 pound. And it was absurd because I was completely broke. And I thought, no, I'm going to get, um, I'm going to, I'm going to get in somehow. So I just hung around for a while. And then, then after about four songs, a couple of women came out of the side door. Like they obviously, for some, for some reason they didn't want to stay. So I ran up to one of them and said, excuse me, excuse me. Have you got the stub of your ticket? And she said, well, I haven't actually, but I've got these. And she, from her handbag, presented me with two full tickets, £16.50 each. I said, well, how much do you want for them? Thinking she was going to, uh, oh, you can have them for face value. I said, great. So I give her £16.50. And I said to this other guy I've been chatting to, oh, mate, come over, ticket. So he came over and we got these tickets, £16.50. She goes, oh, I've got these as well. Backstage passes for the after show party. I went, <laughs> wow thank you so we went in <laughs> right in the middle you know about 10 rows from the front best seats in the house gigs absolutely incredible after the show stick the sticker on walk straight past backstage you've got like queen were in there freddie mercury was there the boomtown rats the uh, yes were in there bob geldof was everybody was it was anybody in rock and roll was in there and one by one, the E Street band came out. Oh, look, there's Clarence Clement. Oh, there's Gary Talent. You know, there's a big man. Big. Everyone came out. I just can't remember. But Bruce didn't show up. Yeah, I thought, where's Bruce? And, and uh, slowly the party sort of wound down. And eventually everyone left. And I, and I was thought, I'm not going to go until I meet Bruce. <laughs> so I thought, I'll go and sit in the toilet for a while. I just went and quietly sat in the toilet for well, I listened to outside so if I could hear Bruce come in. I heard him saying, where's the boss? Oh, he's coming out in a minute. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually I came out of the toilet and, and they said to me, uh, have you, let's see your past. Because it was obvious that I was hanging around. Everybody else had gone. And I obviously looked very young and not like somebody who should have been there, which I wasn't. So, But they couldn't get rid of me because I had the official thing. So I hung around and eventually uh, I thought, I can't stand it anymore because they know they want me to go and, and I'm the only person left here now. So I sort of quietly walked down the street and I just, like got to the end of the, just where the sort of gate was to the you know, exit of the backstage area. This van came along and sitting in the seat with his arm out the window was Bruce. And I just went, Bruce. <laughs> and he shook his hand. He says, Hey man, I'm real tired. I go, I bet you are. It was just fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> I just love those those moments of um, absolute serendipity. Yeah. You know, being in the right place at the right time. It's... Yeah. And your final choice of song. Well, I chose this song by Paul Simon because it's just such exquisite songwriting. I mean, you could cho choose so many songs by Paul Simon. He's a genius of lyrics, of uh, melody, of rhythm. And his songs have got such deep psychological uh, meaning. He's, he's, a, he's the master, really, of, of um, what do you call it, grown-up songwriting. And he's still he's still got it. He's he's, a, he's a, an old man, but we you know we saw the we were lucky enough to see the last show he did in London at Hyde Park, which was one of the most incredible gigs I've ever seen. And this song, "Stranger to Stranger," I mean, I could have just chosen, as I say, hundreds hundreds of his songs, hundreds, but loads of his songs. But um, this is just it's just so perfectly written, so perfectly 
produced, played, sung, everything. It's just it's just a, a masterclass of songwriting. Martin Evan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and listening to all your wonderful stories. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Debbie. to Debbie Souter of Together Talking Music and today I've been speaking with Mark Nevin. 